as well. I invite you to turn with me to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. I was establishing the parameter for approaching the Gospel last week, Christological, Soteriological, Eschatological. I want us to look at this 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31, which is regarded as the Apostles' thesis statement, very much like an English composition teacher would show you how to write a term paper, suggesting that you begin with a thesis statement. So many scholars have concluded that this is John's thesis statement. This is the purpose statement for the gospel. I'm particularly interested in verse 31. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. My suggestion is that this verse captures the Christological, soteriological, and eschatological undergirding or paradigm of the entire gospel. You will notice he has written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is a Christological statement. The focus is upon Christ as God's Son. And that believing you may have life. Belief here is a soteriological category. Namely, it is a saving grace. This is believing in a saving manner, trusting Christ for salvation. And yet you may have life in his name. The life here is obviously more than the life you, you enjoy in the flesh. It is the life of Christ. It is the life of God. It is eternal life. It is eschatological life. So in this purpose statement, the apostle summarizes his gospel in terms of its Christological focus, its soteriological focus, and its eschatological focus. So I am arguing that what I am doing, as I look at the entire gospel in this threefold way, is derived from the Apostles' own statement uh, in chapter 20, verse 31. Now, I'd like to suggest further that if you do not read the gospel this way, if you do not teach the gospel this way, if you do not preach the gospel this way, if you do not live this gospel this way, you have neither understood John nor his gospel. He tells you here why he has written this book. If you then make this book in your own image, with your omnipotent moralism, your tyrannical applicationism, your superficial topicalism, you have not understood the text, you have not understood John's own mind in writing, you have not understood the mind of the Holy Spirit in inspiring the Apostle. You have conformed the text to yourself. You have not been conformed to the text. You have not been conformed to Christ, to his salvation, to his eschatological arena. He invites you to come to him. These are written that you may believe on him and not refashion him so that you can manipulate him. We have briefly situated the Gospel of John then as arising from the son of Zebedee. We have ever so briefly surveyed the history of the interpretation of the fourth gospel so as to situate ourselves in the current state of the discussion. We have proposed a simple bookends envelope to the gospel as it comports with the bookends pattern of the synoptics. And we have advanced a redemptive historical or biblical theological approach to the gospel as Christological, Soteriological, and Eschatological. 
The redemptive historical approach features the eschatological emphasis. In fact, a redemptive historical or biblical theological emphasis without an eschatological or semi-eschatological emphasis is a contradiction in terms. The father of Reformed biblical theology is Gerhardus Voss, and a careful, let alone cursory, reading of Voss's writings learns that the term eschatology or semi-eschatological is foundational to his vocabulary. And the terms are principial. Principial in his hermeneutic because they are principial to the word of God. The term eschatology is woven into the fabric of the Old and New Testament as God himself is woven into that fabric. Therefore, to think non-eschatologically is to think non-theologically. This may impress you as strange, since you, for instance, may think much and deeply about God, and therefore you are a theologian, but you have never, in your deep thinking about God, given yourself to think eschatologically, or so you may imagine. I am suggesting that if you have been given to theological thinking, and everyone who believes in God is involved in theological thinking, all of you are theologians if you believe in God. I happen to be a professional one. That doesn't make me any better than you. Then you have been given to eschatological thinking in thinking theologically. For to think eschatologically is to think theologically. If, after all, God is the absolute eternal being, and his arena is the absolute eternal arena. To think about the eternal person, God, is to think about the eternal arena, heaven. And Gerhardus Voss put this all together in a string of books, which I believe is nothing less than a Copernican revolution in thinking about the Bible. And yet Voss merely observes what the writers of the Bible, the church fathers, the orthodox theologians of the Middle Ages, the Protestant reformers, old Calvinists, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, what all of these have observed. To think about God is to think about being with God forever. Eternally, sing your hymns. All the hymn writers of the Christian church are writing about heaven. That is eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word for heaven, but that's simply what it means. And even in the Garden of Eden, before the fall of man into sin, Adam thought about being with God Eternally, eschatology is present even in the garden. Eschatology is present even at the creation. Eschatology is present from the beginning of the history of redemption, even as God himself is present from the beginning of the history of redemption. Thus, Gerhardus Voss has taught us, has taught me, that the whole plan of salvation from The creation in Genesis 1 to the consummation in Revelation 22 is eschatologically oriented. It is oriented towards God in heaven. And the whole purpose of the plan of salvation from creation to consummation is to redeem sinful men and women and children to God, where he is, in heaven Heaven, therefore, casts its canopy over all of history from creation to consummation. These are the bookends of the history of redemption. Notice your handout. Creation and consummation sandwiched in between salvation. In other words, we have another trans-redemptive historical bookend paradigm. Creation bookended with consummation 
in between redemption or salvation and all eschatologically oriented. That, in fact, that little threefold sandwich is taken directly from Voss himself. So to approach Scripture biblically, theologically, or redemptive historically is to approach Scripture theologically or eschatologically. And Gerhardus Voss is our great teacher here, for he shows us the priority of eschatology. In his own words, quote, Redemption and eschatology are coeval in biblical history. The eschatological may even be said to have preceded the soteric religion, unquote. Quotation is from the Eschatology of the Psalter, which is the appendix to the Pauline Eschatology, page 325. You have in your packet a chart labeled the eschatological arena. That is my attempt to visually represent what I have just described the overarching priority and prominence of the eschatological dimension down through the whole history of redemption. Christological, soteriological, eschatological is biblical, theological, redemptive, historical, and the Gospel of John is a biblical, theological, redemptive, historical, Christological, soteriological, eschatological gospel. I want you to understand that eschatology is not reserved to the end of history. Eschatology overshadows all of the history of redemption from the creation on down. And we are going to see more of that in this precious fourth gospel. Now, in addition to the biblical theological approach to the fourth gospel, I'm also charting a literary, structural, and narrative approach to the fourth gospel. That is to say, John's gospel is literature. Hence, we need to consider literary conventions as we examine this inspired gospel. John's gospel has a plan. It has a design. That is, it presents a structure, the most rudimentary, I have suggested, with the bookends paradigm. Prologue, epilogue, and the book of Jesus' signs, the book of Jesus' hour. And John's gospel is a narrative. It tells a story. And thus, it has the features of a narrative work. Gospel number four, John's story. John's story narrative of Jesus, the Son of God. We have already noted... The thesis statement, so-called in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, this is a literary element, a statement of purpose, if you will. But John is throughout a literary master. He has composed his gospel in a particular style with a particular theological point of view, which I underscore is not in tension with the synoptic view, but complements it Remember last week's multifaceted diamond. John's theological point of view takes a look at particular events which he has selected to tell his story of Jesus from his viewpoint. All this has been superintended by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but our concept of inspiration does preserve the unique literary and theological traits of the individual personality of the writers, whose own personalities are not annulled by the work of the Holy Spirit, but rather enhanced. Rather, the rich diversity of the individual personalities of the biblical writers enriches our understanding of the manifold character of God, the Lord Jesus, and the precious grace of eternal life. The Gospel of John, as the Bible itself, is a literary work. That is not all they are, but they are that. Appreciation for John's literary quality will draw you into an appreciation for his literary artistry. 
This is a beautifully written book. It has grandeur and pathos, magnificent richness and profound empathy. The recent research into literary qualities has advanced and deepened our understanding of the fourth gospel as it has advanced and deepened our understanding of the entire Bible. This is a very exciting and stimulating age in which to be living for rich, profound penetration into the Word of God, the liberalism of some of those studies notwithstanding. So let us consider a few of the literary devices common to John's Gospel. Your attention to your handout sheet again, beginning with dualism. John has a penchant for elements of paired contrast or dualisms, light and dark, belief and unbelief, above, below, heaven, earth, life, death, truth, lie, love, hate. These Dualisms are expressive of theological meaning, in fact, biblical theological meaning. They indicate two arenas, the eschatological and the anti-eschatological. Eschatological light, anti-eschatological darkness. Eschatological life, anti-eschatological death. Now, please note... These dualisms do not primarily refer to the future. They indicate a present realization of these realities. The eschatological reality of light now is present for those who live in that dimension, that arena. The eschatological reality of darkness is now present for those that live in that arena. Heaven and hell are merely the enduring of these arenas of reality forever and ever. They are the permanent extension of them already now extant. We shall be struck by John's dualisms and the stark contrast between grace and wrath, for he will emphatically make clear that those two arenas are present now and have been present since the incarnation of the Son of God, indeed have been present since Genesis 3. Now, the second literary device that John loves to use is irony, and I pointed out Paul Duke's dissertation on that topic last week, Irony in the Fourth Gospel, that is the major study on this uh, element. Johannine irony is the subject of intense current study and fascination. Duke happens to be the premier on this topic. Something is ironic when it proposes two levels of meaning, two levels of meaning in some way opposed to each other, some way ironic with respect. To each other. Let's take a look at John 6:42. The Jews have come to Jesus in the midst of this bread of life discourse, and they were saying, "Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, "I have come down out of heaven?" The Jews are discussing the origins of Jesus. At level one, Jesus says he comes down from heaven. At level two, they say he comes from Nazareth and his parents are familiar to them. The irony here is that both elements are true, albeit in an ironic way. When they speak of Jesus' origin... He speaks of his ontological origin. He has come down from heaven. When they reduce Jesus to the mere historical, is he not from Nazareth, he plateaus their comments to absolute ontological reality. This one who comes from Nazareth is at the same time from heaven. 
The tragic irony is that the Jews are seeking the Messiah, the Christ, but the Christ comes to them and they reject him. For they refuse to acknowledge that he is more than they, more than a mere man. And that is, of course, a sticking point with all moderns. Jesus cannot be more than I am. He cannot be more than we are. They steadfastly, that is the Jews of the first century, refused to connect Messiah with ontological Son of God. And so they, along with the Romans, crucify him, and so do all who continue to reject him because he claims to be more than they are. But as C.S. Lewis said, if he is not, he is the greatest egomaniac in the history of the world. If he is not who he claimed to be, then he is the greatest megalomaniac of all time. Now, the third element on your sheet is misunderstanding, a frequent Johannine literary device in which double meaning or double sense is revealed. In John 2.19, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Double meaning. The Jews understand and be talking about the Herodian temple, the literal block and mortar temple that is there in the temple court. They misunderstand that he is talking about the eschatological temple, the temple of his resurrected body. In chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Jesus offers the Samaritan woman living water. She misunderstands. She answers, but you have nothing with which to draw water. The double meaning. She understands real H2O, Jesus describes eschatological water, which leaves the drinker eternally satisfied. Whosoever drinks this water will never thirst again. Next is metaphor. Metaphors are terms based upon resemblances, a term grounded in analogy or commonality between two things. Metaphors also suggest two levels of meaning, but in complementary fashion. They heighten or augment the motif with vividness, brightness, energy, and they frequently carry an emotional charge. Behold the Lamb of God, John 1, 29 and 36. A metaphor which vividly and energetically portrays Christ in such a way as to illustrate or image an aspect of his incarnation. And attached to this Lamb metaphor is the aura of gentleness, humility, meekness, as well as vicariousness. That is, that he is a substitute. Now, I want to make a few more comments on John's, on Jesus' metaphors in John's Gospel, for I am maintaining that they are loaded with biblical theological content. First, Jesus uses them presentationally. By that, I mean that Jesus uses metaphors to present the eschatological nature of his person and work. In redemptive historical perspective, the metaphors function retrospectively, that is, reaching back to the Old Testament. And the metaphors function prospectively, that is, reaching forward to heaven. But they also at the same time function incarnationally. That is, they immediately show the reality of the life of the Son of God in the midst of history. Bringing back the metaphor of the Lamb of God. Let's look at it again in semi-eschatological perspective. Note, first of all, retrospectively, Lamb of God, because he is the last Lamb, 
He is the eschatological lamb. He is the final lamb. He is the once and for all lamb. He is the after me no more lamb's lamb. And he is that lamb anticipated in the Old Testament sacrificial lambs, the Old Testament Passover lambs, the Isianic lamb of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, etc. In semi-eschatological perspective, Christ is prospectively the lamb of God because Revelation 13:8 describes him in the eschatological arena as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But he is also immediately the intrusion, the penetration of the reality of the Lamb of God, revealing in the present that the life found in him is the life presently swallowed up, possessed by a substitute. This Lamb of God, your Lamb of God, now. This Lamb of God, your vicarious Lamb of God, now and forevermore. This Lamb of God, your precious substitute who comes into history to die in your place, to take your place in death so that you can take your place in His life. Now, a couple of desultory literary devices in the Gospel. Uh, first of all, Leitwerter which is a German compound term which means keyword. Keyword meaning a leading or repeated term, a word that occurs in the Greek text central to a pericope, central to a section. In John chapter 1, verses 19 to 51, the Greek word menane occurs. Menane. Benji? Adam? To remain. Yes, it's the verb to remain or abide. And in that section... The verb remain, verses 19 to 51, occurs five times. It's a key word in that section. Second, light motif, another German term, refers to key theme, a central theme or a central motif in a pericope or in a, six, in a section. Take John chapters 13 to 17, for instance, the light motif, the key theme is Christ saying goodbye. It is a farewell discourse. Third, chiasm. Now, chiasm is a crisscross pattern, and it takes its name from the Greek letter chi, which is just like our X. And you have on your handout a little diagram of a simple chiasm from, John, from Mark 2:27. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And you'll notice on the handout that as it's laid out over top of one another, that if you draw an X, if you draw a line rather from A to A prime and from B to B prime, you will end up with an X. And that's what a chiasm is. A chiasm is a literary arrangement in which there is an exchange of positions around a central core. Now, there are some arguments among scholars about what a general chiasm is, and I'm not going to go into those details. You can take some of the other courses at the seminary if you want to uh, work out on that. But for our purposes, we're going to look for chiastic patterns in the Gospel of John. And, in fact, we're going to be repaid by finding a number of them. Peter Ellis finds them all over the place. I mentioned this book last week. In fact, he outlines the whole gospel in terms of chiasms. He gets carried away with chiasms. I don't think everything in there is a chiasm. I think there are chiasms present, but when we find them, we must find them on the basis of the original Greek text. We don't find them on the basis of our English outline. Now, I have commented on the basic structure of the gospel, the bookend pattern in closing the book of Jesus' signs and the book of Jesus' hour. Structure organizes narrative. Do not ever misunderstand why I am interested in the structure of biblical texts. 
I am interested in the structure with which the Holy Spirit has inspired the pericope because there is theological significance to the structure. Structure has a purpose. It is unto theological understanding. It is never an academic exercise in and of itself for me. Hence, a narrative approach is helpful as a method parallel to a theological or biblical theological understanding. I want to understand more deeply the theological depth of the work, and if God in his wisdom has inspired it with a particular structure, with a particular literary quality, particular narrative style, I want to understand that because he did it for theological reasons. If John's gospel is a narrative, and it is. If John's gospel is a structured narrative, and it is. Then considering the fourth gospel as a literary narrative may turn out to be theologically, yea, biblically, theologically fruitful. Now, we must begin this discussion with the classic analysis of narrative form, which was laid down by Aristotle in his Poetics centuries ago. By Poetics, and that's the title of the work, by Poetics, Aristotle is not talking about poetry. Aristotle is talking about a term, poetics, descriptive of the order or the arrangement of a literary work, how it fits together. According to Aristotle, the basic poetics of a narrative are the order of the beginning, middle, and end of the drama. Boy, that was tough, wasn't it? Every story has a beginning, middle, and end, and it took Aristotle you know, uh, you know, uh, several years to figure that out and write it up for us. Well, it's the thing that becomes self-evident. You know, somebody writes it, oh, yeah, we know that. Well, now you know that what you know, Aristotle recognized too. Now, this may seem simplistic. It may even seem self-evident. But tragically, most of us forget this when we read the Bible. When a reader identifies the beginning, middle, and end of a story... He locates the movement in the narrative, the progress in the story. And yet very few people read the Bible this way. Let me illustrate from Charlotte Bronte's great novel, Jane Eyre. All you girls will love this one. The dramatic movement begins with Jane's life with her Aunt Reed and her transfer to the orphan Lowood. The Lowood School. The middle portion of the drama is Jane's employment at Thornfield, her encounter with Edward Rochester, the mystery of the tower room, her romance and engagement aborted at the altar. The end of the narrative is Jane's flight from Thornfield and from Rochester out of grief, conscience, broken heart, and the sojourn with St. John Rivers, then her return to Thornfield, to a broken, blinded Rochester, yet a Rochester who confesses that Jane's love is his regeneration. Now, that's the broad plot analysis of Jane Eyre. In fact, one of the great novels of all time, in my opinion, and in many others as well. And I believe that every Christian should read it. It's a very good novel. And I particularly believe that every seminary student should read it. Free time, free time. The narrative development, beginning, middle, and end, is present in the fourth gospel, in the whole of the gospel, and in each of its constitutive parts. What I learn about tracing the development in Jane Eyre, the novel, I can use as understanding the narrative in the fourth gospel. The whole of the gospel begins with a prologue. The middle is Christ's words and deeds. The end is Peter's restoration in chapter 21, the epilogue. But the wedding at Cana, chapter 2, verses 111, also has a narrative pattern. It begins with an invitation. It moves to a crisis over absent wine. It ends in a wonderful miracle, superabundant in its revelation of Christ's glory. 
In other words, not only the whole gospel, but pericopes, sections of the gospel, have beginning, middle, and end drama. I will be paying attention to the poetics of John's gospel narrative in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Now, every narrative takes place somewhere at some time. The where and the when of a story is its setting. Setting. Now, consider your own life as a narrative, a story. It has space and time. Your story takes place somewhere and it takes place at some time. And the setting of your life, the where and when of your story, is crucial to the meaning of your life, the meaning of your story. I'm inviting you to consider the narrative inside the Gospel of John in the same way. The narrative meanings in the Gospel are related to where they take place and when they take place. Let me illustrate from Alfred Hitchcock, from Alfred Hitchcock's film masterpiece, Vertigo, which I personally regard as his greatest film, just eking out by an edge north by Northwest and Cary Grant. Well, in Vertigo, and you must rent or purchase the restored version the restored version to get the full impact of Hitchcock's brilliance. Jimmy Stewart is struggling with love and justice, not to mention his vertigo. And the stunning Kim Novak is entrapping and being entrapped. Now, what is Hitchcock's vertigo without the setting in San Francisco? Between the onset of Jimmy Stewart's vertigo and its... Well, you have to watch the movie. (laughs) The hills, the bridges, the parks, the water, the magnificent views in the city by the bay hold Hitchcock's film narrative together. In fact, he specifically went to San Francisco to film Vertigo because he knew what he wanted to do with the whole story. And only that venue would do it. In like manner, the wedding in John 2 has setting. That is, it has place and time. Cana of Galilee is the place. The time is a marriage celebration. These where and when elements in John 2, 1 to 11, are crucial to the cohesiveness of the poetics of the narrative. I want to show you more about this when we come to John 2, but like Hitchcock for the present, I need to keep you in suspense. So, pay attention to John's settings, his dramatic locations, and the time in which the drama takes place in those locations. And most important, Watch for shifts. Watch for shifts in the setting. Watch for Jesus to move from one location in time to another. Watch what he does. These are very important elements in John's narrative poetics because they contain theological, even biblical theological clues to his story. In other words... Reading, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, is not incidental. It is crucially important to John's theological story of Jesus. Now, the central narrative element in any story, any drama, is plot. This is the heart of the narrative, the essential link in the poetics of a work. Now, some of you may remember that classic outline of plot development that you learned from your high school English teacher or your college literature courses. 
you learned that plot consists of rising action, ascending line, climax, that is turning point or point of release of narrative tension, falling action, descending line, and conclusion, horizontal line, point of relaxation. Now, do not misunderstand me. I am not deprecating that classic outline of plot. But I would like to suggest an alternative analysis of plot development, an alternative to place alongside this classic paradigm, which I think improves it. First of all, a plot consists of sequence. Sequence. The ordering of events which constitute the beginning, middle, and end. There are poetics again. The beginning, middle, and end of a narrative. So the plot is fundamentally about the sequence of events. Second, plot consists in causality. Now, I happen to be a pre-Kantian on this point because I do believe in efficient causation, even in literary matters, but no post-Kantian, no Enlightenment individual really believes in efficient causation anymore. Well, uh, balderdash. Causation in the plot is the connection between events which make up that plot, specifically the connection between elements of conflict. There's the heart of your plot. Conflict or opposition. And the result of that conflict in sequence, resolution or reconciliation. In other words, your plot centers upon the relationship of cause and effect, which brings a crisis, which brings a, a conflict of opposition in the narrative. And then out of that conflict comes a resolution, some kind of relaxation. Third, plot consists of narrative unity. That is, there's a single narrative thread by which the story hangs together. I call it coherence, narrative unity or coherence. And that coherence includes closure, that is, Closing off the narrative, closing down the story, bringing it to a conclusion. Now, closure of a narrative plot is a narrative ending which corresponds in measure with a narrative beginning. You may remember that I have previously described this narrative element in terms of an inclusio. Plot closure or ending is symmetrical to plot inauguration or beginning. The envelope structure or bookend paradigm to the four Gospels, or to give you an easy illustration of inclusio, look at Psalms 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150, and you will notice that they all begin and end in the same way, exactly the same way. Praise the Lord, first verse, praise the Lord, last verse, or in the Hebrew, hallelujah, first verse, hallelujah, last verse. That's an inclusio. That is a bracketed paradigm. I am suggesting that narratives have inclusios. Gospels have inclusios. That there is a symmetry between the way they open and the way they end. Now, I am adding something to the classic plot diagram that is not present in what you were taught in high school or college. I am adding a final element called affective power. Affective spelled A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E as in Jonathan Edwards' masterpiece, Religious Affections, another book that every seminarian ought to read, and every Christian as well. What I mean is the plot produces a response in the reader, the hearer, the viewer. Or are you not affected, affected by reading Jane Eyre or any good classic novel? 
or are you not affected by watching Hitchcock's Vertigo or any good classic movie? So, too, with the reading and hearing of the Bible. It affects us or should affect us. Now, I am proposing that the affective element in the plot of biblical narratives is the response of identification, the response of participation. The drama of the biblical text is precisely at its affective point, at the point where you, the reader, are identified with the drama of the text. Biblical affection does not leave you at a distance from the drama. Biblical affection draws you into the life drama of the text. For you find yourself in the drama, in the text, in the narrative with Jesus, your life, your drama, your affection. He is all of that. Or he must be. Does not the inspired apostle say as much in Colossians 3.3? You find your life hidden with Christ in God. Your life, your heart, your person, hidden with Christ, identified with Christ Jesus, folded down affectionately into Jesus Christ and that treasured up in God Himself. Affection joins you to the central person of the biblical plot, to the Son of God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, proper understanding of the biblical text, proper understanding of the biblical narrative, proper understanding of the biblical plot, does not leave you on the outside attempting to apply the meaning to yourself. From there to here, self. From text to you. From pulpit to pew. No. No. Proper understanding of the biblical text affects you by drawing you into the text. Placing you in the drama in Christ Jesus, moving, moving, moving the pew into the pulpit. Not imposition, not tyrannical prescription, not dull, morose abstraction, not agenda-based moralism, but your life hidden with Christ in God, in and through the effective drama of the text. He's your life in the text. You are moved. Your affections are moved. Your passions are moved into the Christ of the Scriptures. For He folds you, He folds you with all of your deep passions into Himself, He who so deeply and passionately gave Himself for you. Can you come with any less love or affection? Well, the plot of the biblical story, of John's story, is to put you in the sequence. And you are already in the conflict. You are part of the coherent unified narrative thread. You are affected with Christ, with His life, which is your life, with His death, which is your death, with His resurrection, which is your resurrection from death to new life, with His glorification, which is your sitting, your sitting already in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. I don't want you to read or hear the Gospel of John as a Colosseum spectator 
I want, John wants you, God wants you to enjoy this gospel as a player, a participant with all of your affections focused on and joined to the ontological Son of God. Now one final item with respect to literary artistry before we turn to the prologue of the gospel itself, to the text of John 1, 1 1-18. Character development is a central element in any narrative drama. Character development is a central element in any plot. In the Bible, God's character, Adam's character, Abraham's character, Moses' character, David's character, Isaiah's character. In John's Gospel, Jesus' character and the character of the characters with whom he encounters meetings, settings, locations. These are the building blocks of John's story. Nathaniel, Nicodemus, the blind man, Lazarus, Judas, Joseph of Arimathea. The characters are part of the drama, part of John's narrative plot. And Alan Culpepper, in this Anatomy of the Fourth Gospel, has a superb section on characterization in the Fourth Gospel. The fifth chapter of that book is superb, pages 101 to 148. I don't defend it all. Yes, he is a liberal but that doesn't make him wrong about character analysis. What attributes does the character in the drama possess? Give me a personality profile. What comments does the writer make about the character which enable us to gain insights into his or her personality? What dialogue, ah, dialogue, a key to characterization. What dialogue reflects the heart and soul of the character? And then, what does the character not do? Hmm. What does the character not say, which reveals his or her character? The negative is as important as a positive. If plot is the body of the narrative, then characterization is the heart of the narrative. In the third chapter of this fourth gospel, we have one of the most intriguing characters in the fourth gospel, nay, in the whole New Testament, Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus in the dark. At this point, I shall attempt only to whet your appetite for a thorough characterization of Nicodemus when we reach chapter 3. You must ask yourself, why? Why does he come out of the night to see the light of the world? All right, we'll take our break, and when we come back, we'll begin to look at the prologue.